Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for a biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, first-time biographer Kevin Magruder talks about his book, Philip Payton, The Father of Black Harlem, published by Columbia University Press in July 2021. Magruder was interviewed by fellow biographer and bio member Eric Washington. Let's just start with the basics for anybody tuning in, Kevin. Who is Philip Payton? Uh, Philip Payton was born in Westfield, Massachusetts in 1876. He was the son of entrepreneurs. Uh, His father was a barber with roots in North Carolina. His mother was a hairdresser with roots in uh, Baltimore, Maryland. And they met and married in the 1870s and then moved to Westfield where Philip Payton was born. His father was quite successful as a barber, bought a building on a main street in Westfield. And so entrepreneurship was all around him. He didn't show any particular interest in that as a child. And even he describes what you might say as a wayward youth. He dropped out of high school. So he was not on a trajectory for success. He was working in his father's barbershop when he was in his mid-20s. And for some reason, he had an awakening that if he didn't do something, that's where he was going to stay. His parents were ambitious. They did not want him to be a barber. And uh, I think he probably was listening to them, but also his brother, who was a year younger than him, James, was about to graduate from Yale with a degree in classics. And at that point, Peyton decides to go to New York and seek his fortune. And I really wanted to understand who he was, where he came from, what prompted him to build the Afro-American Realty Company and then the Philip A. Payton Company and be a dominant force in Harlem real estate for over 15 years and really be instrumental in promoting Harlem to large populations of Black people moving there in the first decades of the 20th century that that really sets the stage for the Harlem Renaissance. That's a perfect place to jump in. You know, Harlem's Black origin story has some familiar bullet points. Anticipation of the subway that opened in 1904, uh, which led to a rash of speculative development, which led to an excess of unrented apartment buildings. I want to know, in your research, how much of that is accurate versus oversimplification or just patently false? This Peyton biography is really a follow-up to my previous book. It's called Race and Real Estate, Conflict and Cooperation in Harlem, 1890 to 1920. And so I'm really looking at the times that Peyton lived in. And actually, the way I came to that was I went to City University of New York Graduate Center. That's where I got my doctorate in 2010. And I had wanted my dissertation topic to be a Peyton biography. But there are no private papers of Peyton, no business records. My advisor, the late Dr. Judith Stein, she sagely advised me that if I wanted to finish it in a timely way, I probably didn't want to do the biography then. And so 
another friend of mine, Craig Wilder, who's a history professor at MIT, he suggested, well, why don't you look at the times? And so that's what that racing real estate book is doing. And in doing that, I found a lot more information about Peyton and also understood that time better. And so the snippets that you're describing, there's some truth to them, but there's some things that just are not really accurate. So Harlem is predominantly white from the 1600s when it was begun as a small farming community through the early 1900s. By the 1880s, 1890s, it's starting to become urbanized. Brownstones are being built. People who are investing in real estate in Harlem want to build that investment by improving transportation. There were elevated train lines on 3rd Avenue and 8th Avenue, but they felt a subway was going to make it more convenient to get there, and that would increase the value of their property. From the 1880s on, they're trying to get a subway there. And when that does go into construction with the scheduled opening in 1904, there was a lot of anticipation about that. But when I looked at the real estate journal, weekly journal at that time, the real estate record and business journal, I could not find any evidence of a lot of empty buildings mm. at that time. There were periodic times when there was a glut of apartments. The way apartment owners dealt with that was by offering free rent for a month to people to get them in the apartments. And there's a fair amount of accounts of that happening at different times. And I think what has happened is people have looked at that and projected that on to this period mm -hmm. of the subway opening. But even in looking at classified ads during that period, 1904, I did not find evidence of apartments just open. And even when we look at what Philip Payton does, what puts him on the radar for New Yorkers is the Hudson Realty Company, which was a firm that had been started in the 1890s, uh, Maximilian Morgenthau, the uncle of the late Robert Morgenthau, was one of the principals. One of the Bloomingdale's was another principal. They began buying property adjacent to where that 135th Street, Lenox Avenue subway stop was going to be. It's really where Harlem Hospital is now. Mm -hmm. In early 1904, they began buying property there. The subway was scheduled to open in the fall. And through the 1800s, May 1st was called moving day. That was typically when tenant leases were up. And often because landlords offered one month free rent to get people in, poor renters often moved every year, sometimes just down the block to get that free rent. That day becomes known as moving day. In 1904, in anticipation of moving day, Hudson Realty, they issue eviction notices for people in the buildings that they had purchased. They had purchased land and buildings in that 135th Lenox Avenue area. They send out these eviction notices. And there was a small black community that dates at least from the 1890s in that area where Lenox Terrace is now. Mm -hmm. Hudson Realty bought property on the south side of 135th Street between Lenox and 5th, not all the properties, but some of them. They issue eviction notices. 
And they claim that they're putting out these eviction notices because of the increased crime on the street. They even say that the former colored residents had been law abiding, but now we have a population that is always attracting the police. The residents are offended by that. They organize a meeting to challenge that. The Black residents. Right, the Black residents. But what does happen is Philip Payton and a few other Black investors begin buying and leasing property right in that area. And it's really like a chess game. They buy property to block what Hudson Realty wants to do. So what Payton is doing is dealing with buildings that are occupied. His process becomes one of buying buildings occupied by white people, evicting the white people, and putting in Black people. Even by 1904, he has represented himself as a specialist in colored apartments. Mm -hmm. And the white people being evicted are, of course, upset about that. But it was really tit for tat, wasn't it? Because in some cases, white people buy buildings and evict the Black people. So there's this back and forth. But all of that is to say, if there were all these vacant buildings because of overbuilding, he wouldn't have had to evict anybody. He would have just put Black people in empty buildings. I'm glad you, me- you mentioned it was one of my, my next question, actually, moving day, because right. you paint a, a vivid, even cinematic picture that discloses you know, the particular tenuousness of Black New Yorkers in that era. Uh, can you describe what was at stake in that scene? I don't know if you remember the scene. It was on page 57 of your book, and you cited a passage from, I think it was the New York Herald. Yes. And what the Herald is describing is the fallout from the eviction notice that the Hudson Realty Mm. has placed on these residents. There is nothing but trouble in a section of Harlem where a community of Negroes that has grown rapidly in a few years is being made to disintegrate and move on through the concerted action of landlords. 100 families will be on the move today and 600 other families are perilously near eviction. And that was just probably typical of other streets where people were doing the same sort of action uh, um, against Black tenants. I don't know that others did that kind of action, but there was nothing to prevent them Mm. from doing it. And even for these people, I can't tell if they were actually evicted or not. It's possible they were because Peyton and other people, they buy other buildings. They don't buy the buildings from Hudson. So those people might have just had to move on, as the article is saying. Mm. You know, the word father, father of Black Harlem in the title of the book might evoke a a sage, venerable soul. And you reveal that neither Black renting tenants nor his Afro-American realty company peers necessarily revered him unconditionally. So Peyton, he was a race man, but he also was the capitalist. He's, he's working. Yes, for, yes definitely. So to, to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. And maybe I'll bridge that with just finishing yeah. that Hudson Realty sure. story. So when Peyton and his other colleagues buy property, they are successful in doing that. And Booker T. Washington sends a telegram to Peyton congratulating him on his efforts. He says, for the race and for your investment. That puts Peyton on the map. That's the spring of 1904. By the summer of 1904, Peyton announces the incorporation of the Afro-American Realty Company. 
he had formed it as a partnership a year before with around a dozen black business people as partners. He incorporates it and begins selling stock for $10 a share. He issues a prospectus with the figure of a black man on the cover, even the name Afro-American. He grounds it in blackness and his rhetoric in incorporating, he says that Negro colonization will be done away with if you invest in the Afro-American Realty Company. And what he's really saying is he's going to break down the barriers of residential racial segregation through the Afro-American Realty Company. It's a very ambitious vision. And that really is why I was so interested in looking at him in this biography, because he doesn't fulfill it. He strays from that vision. And what he does is he reinforces segregation that was growing, racial segregation was growing in housing at the time. And he reinforces that. So by evicting white tenants and putting in black people, the advantage he has is the practice was to charge black people more in rent. And that was even happening in that small black enclave at Lenox and 135th Street. There were white owners of those properties. And the reason why they liked having black tenants there was because they got a better return by charging them more rents. Mm. And so Peyton doesn't break from that. He continues that. An argument can be made that he has some good, maybe, quote, justifiable reasons. And what he talks about is he's providing Black people with higher quality housing than had ever been available to them mm-hmm. in the Tenderloin, in Greenwich Village. And he is right because Harlem is new then as a urban area. Right. Most of the buildings that people are moving into are probably less than 20 years old. So they are getting better housing. From an economic theory point of view, what drives segregation is that it pays in terms of housing. If you can limit the choices that a group has in where they can go, they'll pay more because they know they don't have other choices. And mm-hmm. that's what white owners are doing. And that's what Peyton does as well. That caught me um, because you described sort of the change because he starts out in his prospectus waxing rather philosophical. It was a marvelous phrase, uh, race prejudice is a luxury and like all other luxuries can be made very expensive in New York City in the context of possibly integrating. (laughs) And that doesn't really last very long, that that ideal. Yeah. Uh, And when I think about why, It's the dilemma that I talk about in the book about racialized capitalism. So Peyton comes from a family of entrepreneurs, but it's not major wealth that could have financed his business ventures. Mm -hmm. His father might have helped a little bit, but it's not great wealth. Definitely not the kind of wealth that the Hudson Realty had behind their business. And so I think that he is struggling to get his business off the ground. And he can't deny the possibility of greater revenue by charging these higher rents. Peyton's personal alliances were many notables, but perhaps one of the most familiar African-American citizens in the nation, black or white, was Booker T. Washington. Was it a personal relationship or strictly business? It was personal. And that relationship, I think, 
goes back to Westfield and it's a little convoluted, but um, Booker T. Washington grew up in Virginia. Booker T. Washington went to Hampton Institute and when he graduates, he goes back to his town in Virginia and begins mentoring other black youth. And one of those is a man named Samuel Courtney. And Courtney ends up becoming something of Washington's protege. Courtney is going to Westfield Normal School at a time when Peyton is probably an adolescent. And the link there, I think, is through Hampton that Samuel Chapman Armstrong, who was ahead of Hampton and Booker T. Washington was his protege. And so as Washington sets up Tuskegee, his star students, he sends to Westfield Normal. And so I believe it's through Samuel Courtney that Peyton has that connection with Booker T. Washington. And so when Booker T. Washington forms the National Black Business League, Samuel Courtney eventually goes to Harvard Medical School and has a medical practice in Boston. The first meeting, national meeting, is in Boston, and Samuel Courtney is the chair of it. Two years later, Philip Payton is at one of the other annual meetings. And probably a year after that, he's in the executive committee of that organization. And he's still in his 20s then. Mm. And so the level of connection is in 1903, he goes from being a porter in a real estate office in probably about 1901 to buying a brownstone on 131st Street in 1903. And so there's this trajectory that goes very quickly. And that home is a place where he entertains regularly and he uses the press to promote what's happening. Basically, there are reports on his receptions that are in the New York age regularly. And it is often rumored that Booker T. Washington controlled or had an interest in the New York age. Booker T. Washington was often a guest at Peyton's home. And so it's not a, you know, just a separate relationship. Mm -hmm. And your earlier question alluded to the pushback that Peyton got from within his own company. In 1906, he sued by disgruntled shareholders of the Afro-American Realty Company because he had not issued a dividend. And it's a really messy suit. And he has built a business that is dependent on his image. And that really tarnishes his image. But even with that, he's not cast out by Booker T. Washington. Peyton's style is more confrontational than Booker T. Washington's was. But there seems to be a level of admiration that remains. Peyton spends several months in Liberia in 1910. Emmett Scott was one of Peyton's very good friends. Emmett Scott was Booker T. Washington's right-hand man. Emmett Scott had been on a three-person United States team that spent several months in Liberia, I believe it's 1909, surveying the conditions, the economy, and then providing the United States with recommendations. The next year, Peyton is in Liberia looking for business interests. The company loses that lawsuit. He immediately pivots and forms the Philip A. Peyton Company and keeps moving on. And during all of that time, Booker T. Washington is still at dinners at Peyton's home. 
Peyton is part of groups hosting Booker T. Washington and receptions. There doesn't seem to be a break in that reverence uh, that Peyton had for Washington or Washington probably seeing him as a protege. You describe a lot of this play-by-play and interaction in your book. Uh, I want to talk about the process a little bit. Um, Peyton also loomed large in in your previous book that you mentioned, uh, Race and Real Estate. But did writing Peyton's biography present unique challenges as opposed to the general real estate issues that you were tackling in the first book? Yeah, one of the biggest challenges was to try to have his voice represented to the extent I could. I believe there probably are. I hope there are business records, but I couldn't find them. And I spent several years searching for them and no personal papers. And so fortunately, he knew people like Booker T. Washington and others and Emmett Scott. And so I looked in their papers for him. Washington's papers are at the Library of Congress. That's how I was able to see what the stationery of the uh, Philip A. Payton Company looked like because it's in that record. There's correspondence between them. Emmett Scott's papers, which are mainly at Morgan State, similarly, in Payton's last months of life, there's correspondence between him and Emmett Scott. And so I was able to see that. Because Peyton used the media so much, the New York age was essential. That was really his major connection. And he's there all the time. It might be a classified ad. Often it's an article. It might be an article on a dinner. And the menu of the dinner will be in the article. And even that helped me understand his wife. At the time that they're married, she was called Maggie. Later in life, she called herself Margaret. But that's a fascinating connection because in his junior year of high school, he was hanging out with the wrong crowd and his father sends him away from Westfield to Livingstone College in uh, Salisbury, North Carolina, a historically black college. At that time, the founding president was J.C. Price, who uh, W.E.B. Du Bois said that Price was building the Harvard of the South. Booker T. Washington, 1907, put out an anthology called The Negro in Business, Mm-hmm. And that anthology has profiles of different people. And so Peyton was one of the people profiled. And that includes a picture of Peyton and his wife. And I believe he met her when he was in North Carolina for that one year because he goes back to Westfield, finishes his education. And she's in Westfield before they married, working as a maid for a wealthy woman. When Peyton, I believe, is working in the barbershop, they don't get married until uh, they move to New York. But I think that background in service helps to explain the level of entertaining that they were doing. You know, just like many Black women who worked in homes end up opening up catering businesses because they understand the standards. I think that's what she was applying to her own home. And eventually they have a maid, a Black woman who's working with them. And so that was really the challenge because he used the media so much and not just New York Age, but other Black press picked up what he was doing. And other media too, There's a, there was a newspaper in the Northwest. It had an article about Maggie Payton pulling up her late model car to a, a department store and going in and buying this and that on her husband's name. And this was in a white paper. This is probably 1907. Um, 
Peyton understood that presentation is really important and he is always managing his image. I think the reality is he's often behind the scenes struggling to keep that going. In the last five years of his life, there are a lot of challenges that he's facing, but you don't see that in the press. You know, we tend to over romanticize or have a nostalgia that we haven't really, not an earned, necessarily an earned nostalgia, but there's often talk about Harlem was once, uh, it was very different. It was, it was, you know, it was mostly black owned. And did your research, did it confirm or contradict or illuminate that notion that Harlem was once mostly black owned? It contradicts that. You know, I lived in Harlem for about 25 years and I, I didn't enter this thinking that, mm-hmm. um, So in race and real estate, what I determined is that the Black ownership was higher than we often think, Mm. but it was still relatively low. But what Peyton and others did is they were strategic in terms of the buildings they did buy. And so this is what I mean by Peyton using the media he branded Harlem as a Black community before there were a lot of Black people there. Mm-hmm. And in the same way, his buildings, the name of his company, Afro-American Realty Company, projects this Black control, even though it's nowhere near 50% ownership. Uh, what advice would you have to you know, first-time biographers who are kind of dwelling in the same territory as you, as you yeah. were? I would say to approach it carefully and think about what resources you're going to have available, that if somebody didn't leave records, kind of being creative, I'm thinking about where one can find that person in other records, maybe not their own, but in other people's records. That was author Kevin Magruder speaking with fellow biographer and bio member Eric Washington about Magruder's book, Philip Payton, The Father of Black Harlem published by Columbia University Press in July 2021. This interview was recorded online via Zoom on September 22nd of this year. To learn more about BIO or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a fantastic day. Bye.